Welcome to We Are The People with me, Philip Burke, a podcast that speaks to people like you about your lives. The vast majority of us follow a well-trodden path when it comes to what we do in our lives. We may take an unexpected diversion here and there, but by and large, we follow in the footsteps of where others have gone before. Stephen Carton grew up in Dublin, went to school in Dublin and completed a degree and master's in engineering in Trinity College. You can probably fill in the gaps from here, right? Wrong. A chance encounter as a fresher in Trinity lit a spark that created a passion for American football that burned so brightly, he decided becoming an American football coach was his destiny. He left Ireland in a hurry and put his foot on the bottom rung of a ladder and started climbing. His adventure taught him the importance of family to embrace his identity and what happens when you take a chance. This is Stephen Carton. Stephen Carton, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Phil. It's something I've been looking forward to. It's something completely out of the blue and different that I haven't done before, so it should be interesting. I have no idea where this is going to go. I suppose the best place to start is right back at the beginning. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when uh, you grew up? Probably one of my first memories is when um, we were living in St. Helens Wood. This is back, so it must have been like first class or something like that. I remember sitting on the stairs and weeping my eyes out. Mum comes up and is like, well, what's wrong with you? And I was just like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I don't know if I want to be an American cop or a professional ice hockey player. And so for like an Irish kid to be saying they want to be an American cop or any kind of ice hockey player I thought was pretty outrageous. But I think I've always kind of, from, from that young age, I know I've always kind of wanted to go back to America, even though I didn't know the exact right answer at the time. But You were born in America? Yeah, my me and my uh, twin sister were born in America. Uh, Mum and dad went over there when one of the older brothers, I think, was only about 10 days old when they flew out there. And then uh, three years later, myself and Megan were born. And um, so we've got dual citizenship. And then before we were three years old, we moved back to Ireland too. So I don't actually have any like long-term any of my actual memories from America are kind of from videos or uh, like photos from the old house there. But yeah, I remember, yeah, my first real memory is sitting on those stairs in uh, on Booterstown Avenue and just, yeah, being distraught and not what I, not knowing what I wanted to do with the rest of my life when I was in first class. So, um, And why ice hockey? Where did that come from? Um, I mean, I have no idea where the ice hockey thing came. I mean, I think <laughs> it was just like a, a professional sport that we didn't have in Ireland. So, God only knows where I got it, but um And what were you like as a kid in school? Um pretty shy, but I kind of I thought I like I I like getting on with everyone, you know, that's and you know, being one of five kids, you know, you go to school and it's just like, oh, this is way more normal than the house. Like at least the all these people are more like me, you know. And um I, I really enjoyed school. I loved trying to get into every I think I tried every single sport you could at the school, or at least every sport they would let me try. And the kind of the competition of us, uh, having two older brothers, being the youngest of three is just, I guess you're always just trying to prove that something at some point. And, um, you know, if it was rugby, if it was football, it wasn't too much Gaelic at Black Rock, but uh, basketball, squash, tennis, whatever it was, just like anything that they would basically let me get out of class or anything we could do before school, anything we do after school. I just wanted a piece of it. And, I think kind of the more, of the, especially last year during the lockdown, I was kind of thinking about it, like the the competition and the community side of sports is kind of what really kind of draws me to it and kind of has kept bringing me back to it. It's, what do you mean by the community side of it? As well, especially here in America, like the, I mean, we show up to a game two hours before kickoff and there's already parents like tailgating outside the stadium and just, 
not, not even that part of like the community of it. Um, but like, I mean, there's so much less bullshit around sports. I mean, people will be honest with you. Like, look, you did this wrong. You did that wrong. This is how you can get better. Like in an office job, in any kind of job, in any kind of workplace, in any relationship, there's a lot of like kind of tiptoeing around and trying yeah. to be very kind of sentimental and trying to think about this and that. And there's just kind of a little bit more kind of honesty. And I think that that kind of, I mean, how else do you get teenage boys to like weep with each other other than like something like sports, you know, it's just like, it can be like so uplifting. It can be so heartbreaking, but I always think that's just like, it's just, I mean, it's all these kids that spend 95% of their time trying to be the toughest guy around. And then, you know, this little game of sports just made them cry because the ball didn't go the way they wanted to or something like that. And I don't know. I think sports can have a huge effect on people. Did you have to try too hard to be better at sports than your older brothers? Uh, no, I remember I got a compliment one time and it just blew my mind. I was just like, I think one of them might have said I was all right uh, <laughs> for, for my age. And uh, <laughs> I was just like, oh, wow, like I could go pro. And so I think that's why I tried so many different sports. Like I was just trying to find the sport that I would go professional in. Like rugby wasn't it. After a while, I was like, if I'm playing prop, I don't really want to be 130 kilos like for all of my professional career. So then I uh, I tried uh, soccer as I've gotten to know it here. That that had some some highs and some lows playing uh, club soccer on the weekends. Uh, I I had other commitments in the in the wee hours of the night that often uh, led to me not being too successful on the field there. But uh, but then like, you know, I, my dad for the, for my 16th birthday, got me like a dynamo for my bike where you just, you know, you put the back wheel up on the thing and uh, you can just kind of basically practice cycling at home. I was into Peloton about 15 years too early. So, I mean, I remember just going out there like on weeknights, just it's on weekends, just going out there for like 40 minutes to an hour, just sweating out in our shed on this bike. And I was like, do I really want to do this as a like this is what this is what it takes to be a professional cyclist. This is going to be terribly boring, and no one's even going to care or notice. So um, I was like, maybe I'll try a different sport. And so that's when I about sixteen, seventeen, I gave up the idea of going on the Tour de France and everything like that. So was every sport you picked up with the idea of being the best in Ireland, I, possibly at it? <laughs> I don't know if I had the if I ever looked at it like that, but I just I always wanted it. I always wanted something. I didn't want to live quote unquote, an ordinary life. I just thought like, you know, every, everyone had a chance to kind of make it and everyone had a chance to go far. And I just thought, I never thought that I was stunningly good, but I just, I just loved playing sports. I love And like I said, the competition part of it, anytime there was anything nice brought home from the shopping, it was a competition to see who could eat it the fastest. So you wouldn't have to share it with the other five siblings. So <laughs> everything was kind of competitive in my head and probably not, committing to being a professional and everything. But I just thought that maybe if I did this, maybe I could go far. And, you know, I mean, I think there's probably about, probably about 10, 10 guys from my graduating class in Black Rock that went on to play professional rugby for some length of time. So it wasn't like that unreasonable a thing from my yeah. head. I don't know. I just, I didn't want to, it scared me the idea of going and getting a job and wearing a suit and clocking in and clocking out or something just, I was like, sure, there's got to be like a way to kind of not do all that. There's got to be something I could really just love doing for the rest of my life. And I think that's kind of always kind of been there in the background of my head of kind of what I've been doing or would I accept this job or would I apply for this job? And when I first moved to America, that was kind of my whole idea. I just 
I was like, I'll get any job. I'll come in at the ground floor, but I need to get a flexible job so I can go and do work uh, as a football coach, as an American football coach, as much as I could, essentially. I could give that all the hours. I could give that all the attention. I didn't have to have a job that I was bringing stuff home with me, having to look at it or having to prepare stuff the next day. So I got into working as a as a waiter over in San Francisco on Pier 39 and in the famous Bubba Gumps. I mean, like, and again, like that was a great experience for what it was, but I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think I have this overdeveloped idea of loyalty and I was like, well, no, these guys gave me my first job. I shouldn't look for a second job. I shouldn't look for another job. And I was in the wedding party for one of my managers there. Like I, I did have a good relationship with all the managers and other staff there and stuff like that. So, but uh, I, I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I had to leave San Francisco as a whole. I kind of, I would find it hard to go to another restaurant. I would find it hard to go and coach at another school. And I had another job at the time and the boss for that job was actually the, our landlord as well. And I was like, I don't want to quit that job and still live in his house. So I'll just move city so I can avoid that awkward conversation. That's the kind of, that's the kind of confrontational person I am. So um, <laughs> I'll just move like, couple of hundred miles up the coast rather than have a tricky conversation with my boss that i don't want to work for him anymore so just going back to like your your school days you're obviously seriously busy outside of the classroom what were you like in the classroom um i was always a good test taker i wasn't that like smart or anything like that but i wasn't like a, I wasn't like kind of naturally high up or anything like that until it wasn't until like after like third year that I realized that they, they actually ranked the classes. You know, if you were in five eight, you were in the top class for eight uh, for fifth years. If you were in five two, you were in the bottom class. And I was in a lot of like threes and four classes. And I was like, I need to step like this is just a, this is not a good look. Like this isn't I guess the c- competitiveness in me was just like we can't be going on like this. So by the time I got to sixth year, I was in kind of more seven and eight classes, but that was through kind of doing grinds and uh, going into the Institute on weekends and things like that. But uh, I was a lot better going, finding the solution and then putting it in the answer rather than kind of like actually understanding the subject or something like that. So, which has unfortunately been exactly kind of how I then slipped through college and stuff like that. What are your memories of school? Um, A lot of fun times. I mean, because especially in BlackRock, we, you know, you, you essentially had the same group of friends from first class through sixth year. So, I mean, you know, I, I still am friends with a lot of those guys. So it's, um, it's, it's kind of a very, very close knit community. And, you know, so I always love that kind of sense of just like the, the, these are just kind of going to be your people here for like the net, for the rest of your life. And I guess I never really bat an eye at it. And I, I love that idea. And I, I feel like every Christmas when I come back from Ireland or come back from America, it's, uh, you know, I, I can just pick up a conversation with someone. I feel like we just, put the phone down last Christmas, we just picked it right back up and we can kind of get almost right back into the same conversation. And BlackRock has a, has a reputation, not always for, for good things. Do you think that's deserved? I don't know about deserved, but it's probably been earned. And I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess that's what, it, it, that reputation bothered me a lot. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons I fell away from rugby too, is that I just didn't want to be associated with this kind of, beast of black rock and when you're in college and everyone's first question is like oh what school did you go to and you're like like ashamed to almost say black rock because then because as soon as you say you're black from black oh you're a black rock wanker and 
it's just, it's so, like it's not just that but it's just like people are like oh they kind of start filling in the blanks about you a little bit and it's just like i just we could have actually had a conversation but you've already like now that i've said that like you've kind of figured out a few things about me or at least you think you figured out a few things about me so i guess i didn't like the rep i mean i knew about the reputation at the time and it's kind of i just didn't like it and it was just you know everyone has a reputation and it's it's not up to them really what other people think of them and i've kind of come to realize that over the years that and kind of running away from that. I, I mean, I've, I didn't like the fact that people knew what BlackRock was or if I, well, my sister said, because uh, I asked her, like, well, what do you say when people or ask you where you're from? Because like, I can't, I can't say BlackRock because then people just like, I, that's like literally a, a conversation killer. And then she's like, oh, I just say I'm from Booterstown. And it's just like, oh, that's so smart. And like people are people, most most people don't even know where Booterstown is. They're just like, oh yeah, yeah, Dublin, fantastic. And then they just can like, continue the rest of the conversation I'm like now i've come to america and it's just like oh you're irish conor mcgregor right and it's just like <laughs> oh this is the exact same shit just in like i mean trying to like run away from people's ideas of you or people's kind of like short-term ideas of you uh, i mean you could just do it forever and ever and ever and just when you left blackrock what did you do i kind of thought i wanted to be an architect coming out of school one of my friend's dads worked as a he worked on a construction site he kind of developed his own buildings and then sold them off himself so he would kind of bring us around doing odd jobs on weekends or show us how to do something around the house so i was always very kind of interested in that and kind of how things were built and so i was like oh i'll be an architect and then i realized that being an architect required a lot of schoolwork and it was like something like 550 points in the leaving so a little out of my price range i got into engineering um in trinity college and uh five to about five of my kind of closer friends from black rock actually went into trinity too so i'd only signed up to do a bachelor's there and i do have very fond memories looking back on it but in first year i was i did not enjoy it i mean i love the social aspect of it i love going out on the weekends i love going out during during the week but i mean engineering and i mean it was like a 30 35 hour commitment i mean it was just like going back to school i mean you're in from like nine until four you know then you have your friends and you know first year arts block kind of stuff and they're like oh yeah i had a 30 minute meeting today and then i'm not in for another two days you're just like like how can you have that kind of a college it's like it was just so frustrating to me and and i wasn't really getting the engineering stuff i mean we had some crazy intelligent lectures and i guess they're people that are doing like projects at the time at trinity but they just like weren't very good at explaining things to people that weren't on their level so again you're in an auditorium with 200 people and you don't want to stop this guy who's kind of rambling on about the, his phd and telling you about thermodynamic laws and you just uh, and i was like I, I was taking books out of the library just to because he would draw like some kind of symbol on the board and i was like i don't even know what that is and it's just like he, he just drew like a, a delta a greek a greek symbol kind of funnily so i it just it, it took me like a week to figure out what that was and it was so insignificant and had nothing to do with the overall thing and i was just like I, i'm just like putting all my effort into the wrong place and i thought i wanted to drop out and then i was like oh, i want to do journalism i want to go tell people around the world different things and maybe that'll be my way to be famous and now that i'm not doing any professional sports anymore and my parents kind of just talked me down off the wall. I mean, I kind of stopped going to college for a while, I think, and during the second semester, and just kind of staying home, avoiding lectures. I'd go in for labs or anything like that, but I, I was really kind of feeling just like fed up with it. And then my parents were like, "Look, it'd be a lot easier for you to transfer to a different, like a, to a different degree if you pass your first year exams rather than dropping out halfway through." So they're like, "Just put your head down." try to get through first year and just kind of see what you think then. And you can like make a decision based off it then. And so got some grinds and 
I don't know how I did it, but I managed to pass um, that first year. And we were away in Canada in Vancouver that summer, actually. And so I remember it was a bit of a mixed emotions because, again, there was about 10 of us engineers there. And I think two of them actually failed their exams and had to go home early. But I remember, you know, two of us went out to celebrate. I mean, we were both had no money out there and um, we were both covered in dirt coming back from our job at a, like a recycling plant. And we like stopped into a bar to get like one glass bottle of beer. Cause we just hadn't had something that fancy. I mean, we've been living off like 8% beers uh, like that. You guess with just like with no branding on them, like just the, whatever is the cheapest we could get, we were buying. So uh, we celebrated hard with what one iced cold beer at a bar. And then we took off again, but, yeah, my whole idea after passing those exams was like, oh, past first year, how much harder could this get? Um, I had no idea it would get so much harder, but I, at that point, I kind of agreed to kind of stick with engineering and kind of see it out. Uh, agreed with yourself or with? Yeah, agreed. Just kind of like, I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, like, I was just, I mean, I really was that kind of arrogant and naive about it. It was like coming from not having been to lectures to passing these exams, I was like, I mean, if I go to lectures and things like that, this will be easy or not easy, but at least be doable. And at that point, I guess I had gotten used to kind of studying with friends and them kind of explaining ideas to me that had gone over my head in kind of class and stuff like that. So yeah, about four years later, I graduated with a master's degree. So even with the master's, I slipped through the cracks for five years there. I Every year, every year when exam results came out, I was certain I'd be like, wait a second, like you shouldn't have been here in the first place. Like you shouldn't have been taking these exams. So definitely a little bit of imposter syndrome in there. But As you went through, you must have wanted to be an engineer. Um, well, like that's, I guess the, the good thing about engineering is that the, you, you can go in so many different directions and that, and that it's almost like the flexibility at the end of it that was kind of drawing me to it because like my close group of friends, I think only two of them are kind of actually in engineering fields. Like everyone else is, I mean, one guy's a tattoo artist, one guy's working in finance, one guy's working in research and development. I mean, it's, it's like a get in, get in anywhere for free card, basically with an engineer. People are like, oh, I mean, it is, I think it's, people have this mystical idea of engineers just being able to solve anything and do anything. And I'm fine with that kind of preconception because, I mean, it has opened a lot of doors for me. And I think people think I'm a bit smarter than I am. But, but then they have a conversation with me and I kind of bring them back down to ground. But no, it was, uh, I don't know if I ever really had uh, a clear cut idea of what I really wanted to do. And certainly when I was getting through college, it was just like, just get through it, just get through it, just get through it kind of thing. Um, but um, having come from Black Rock and played rugby for 12 years, and I'd kind of said in, in six years, this would be my last year playing rugby. Yeah, the, during Freshers Week, there was just a, a guy standing there wearing an American football jersey. And I was like, oh. And we give this guy a little chat and talk to him a bit. And yeah, they kind of convinced me to come out to play American football there. And it's the first year that Trinity had like an 11 aside team. Before that, they had previously played like eight aside, which is a bit like sevens in rugby, like almost because they couldn't get a full team that they were playing with smaller squads. So over the years, I kind of just fell in love more and more with the sport and kind of what well, certainly what people kind of keep telling me is just like kind of the more you know, or the more you know, the more there is to know. Like as, as soon as you turn over one stone and you're like, oh, I figured this out. And you're like, oh, wait, there's like 20 subdivisions to this. And you know, you look under one of those and it just kind of, it's like a little Russian doll. There's always more to know here. So what was your knowledge of American football going into first year in college? Um, nothing except like playing Madden or there was a game NFL Street as well. No real knowledge. And I just, I think I remember my dad, and this is much younger, probably when I was like 11 or something like that. Just so, and like, they almost never had American football news in the Irish times, but there was just like every now and again, I guess they got like some tiny little 
two inches of an article or something like that. And my dad just being like, oh, look, the Minnesota Vikings did this. And I was born in Minnesota. So uh, he was showing me something about the Vikings. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool, I guess. And I guess that kind of stuck with me more than I probably realized. But yeah, going into college, I didn't really have too much of an idea of it. And it just seemed like, you know, I was like, oh, here's another co- competitive sport. And it's kind of like chess with real people. And you're playing mind. There's a lot of mind games going on. And when I was in Trinity, we were green as ever and had no idea about football and then I think after two seasons we kind of ousted our coach actually the day before we were we were due to call our coach and let him know that we were letting him go he must have gotten a tip off from someone because he actually resigned the night before which is actually fun I mean we, none of us I mean we were like passing like oh you, you've got to call him and tell him you've got to you're passing that back and forth so for like the last two and a half years I was there uh we were like the the head coaches we did the administration work like we applied like we were the ones that went to met with Pete like the college board to ask for more money for things we were in charge of like organizing sponsorship, new jerseys, new equipment. We went out. There was one game we were supposed to be playing and we didn't get to use the rugby pitch or the cricket pitch in Trinity, which would have been beautiful and handy and all the rest of us. But we had to use the pitches out in Santry and the, the groundskeeper out there hated us because there's so many lines on an American football field. <laughs> um, it's not like, you know, a soccer pitch or a rugby pitch where there's probably, you know, a total of about five lines across the field. There's not not like American football where you need to have yard lines every yard on both sides of the field and there are different measurements and all the rest of it and you're supposed to have numbers painted on the field and things like that and we got out there one Sunday morning and about two hours before kickoff and realized there was the grass hadn't been cut and there's no lines on the field so me myself and the vice captain at the time had to literally ask like we found the you know the little white paint thing and we found that in a little we didn't even have a paintbrush we used it that in a some kind of flat stick we found to kind of paint some lines on the field quick. I mean, the other team were, we saw their bus pull in and they were watching us paint the, paint the lines on the field. And the, even the, the, the referees like, this is great, but like you can see the lines kind of veering off here. Like the, the pitch wasn't exactly rectangular. I mean, it was pretty rectangular, but like not as rectangular as it should be. But so we were doing everything for the team and, you know, we were breaking down film. We were organizing meetings and, like I said, like we got to about Easter of uh, the, my fifth year in college, and I was like, "Oh, I don't like actually. I, I actually enjoy doing this work, like this organization work, this towards this goal. Like this is work, like you know, we're doing in college when I should be doing college work, and then when we go home uh, or when I go back to my friend's house, like we're still kind of doing football work. Like we're still watching film, we're still doing other things, still trying to organize recruits. So that was just it. Kind of I." got hit by a lightning bolt and it's like, Oh, this is something I don't want to put down. Like everything else. I'm just like, I'm done with at a certain time, but like this, this is what I don't want to put down. Maybe this is what I want to try and do. And kind of getting to be players and coaches at the same time, I guess kind of got to open my eyes to kind of the fun part of that and or the fun part of coaching. Yeah. I just kind of realized that yeah, around then that's when I, I kind of really locked in on the idea of moving to America once I graduated from college and trying to give coaching a go. Wouldn't have tried to give playing a go. Uh, not at all. Uh, the, the level of athletes out here is just so far beyond what, what I was as a, I mean, cause I was, I would have been almost 24 when I moved out here. So, um, it would have been old teams are wary of drafting players that are 24 and have played football their entire lives. I mean, we have, who plays American football in Ireland? Um, it's a unique brand of people. 
but it, it it's uh it's definitely grown i think the when we started in back in that first year i think there was eight teams that were playing 11 aside and then by the time i finished uh like five years later there was like three different divisions and i think a total of about 30 teams or something like that so but it's it's usually it's people that are just really big fans of the sport, not necessarily people that are trying to because I mean no one's getting a like scholarship or anything like that for American football. So it's usually people who have friends on the team who are like, oh, we could do with you kind of coming out or yeah, it's there's there's some pretty hilarious characters. I mean, just the and there's there's so much time for talking back and forth on a football field as well, where there's like there's you know, maybe two or three people are talking to their respective sidelines, but everyone else in the middle of the field has plenty of time to talk crap to each other. So I used to love that part. I mean, just talk shit to a guy, line up, run into him with your face first, and then someone blows a whistle and you get to do it again. And then it's basically just, I don't know, all action. And, you know, there's a lot more to it than just running face first into people, which I've learned now. But um, certainly as like a 19 year old in college who didn't know how to express himself in any way shape or form this was very expressive uh, and the element of community must be huge there as well especially with a, with a growing sport like that certainly our community it was very tight-knit and you kind of we had like kind of bright red like crimson shirts um that someone that one of our coaches had organized our first or second year so it's really easy to kind of spot people around and, and it was almost like a secret society because people like, do you play American football? Like just kind of come up to you like that. And I heard you play American football. That can't be right. Is it? And like, I had a, I had an awful Afro after I finished, uh, finished my leaving search. I just, my hair just grows out in all directions evenly. So and I was always embarrassed that my head looked like a, a microphone, like my silhouette looked like a microphone. Um, just cause it was a big bob at the end. And so as soon as I got to college, my mom gave me, 10, 10 year to go get my hair cut and so I saved that for cans and I went down to my friend's house and he got a pair of scissors and just chopped off the sides of my hair and I looked kind of a bit more like a skunk or some kind of afro frohawk type thing and then that kind of got a little bit too untidy and my mom said I'll give you 10 year to go get your hair cut again the next day I was like fantastic more cans the next day and I uh, just got my friend to clean up the haircut and this time he used uh, like his mum's like vacuum cleaner to like suck the hair up and then trim it off with the scissors so it was a lot more professional the second time round, and uh, then I kind of eventually got left with this kind of mullet style. I, I kind of cut the top off because it was getting so long that when it rained, my hair went down past my chin. So I was like, "Oh, I'll just cut the top off." So at this point, I had no no top and no sides, and just had hair at the back. And I was like, "Oh, kind of accidentally worked my way into a mullet here. This is fantastic. Like I can see why people enjoy wearing a mullet." So people kind of knew me around uh, Trinity for having. The, the worst haircut in college, I suppose, and also being on the American football team. So, um, again, not being able to express myself with words, I did it through playing a very niche sport and having a terrible haircut. So, without trying to, without telling people to look at me, I was trying to get them to look at me, I suppose. So, <laughs> so your mom's obviously had quite a quite an influence on your college life already, trying to keep you in college and keep you looking respectable in college. Yeah, she. Uh, Mom and dad, I guess, um, did a great job of, I mean, always just trying. I mean, the two of them just worked. I mean, they, they were never like, a, you have to do this, you have to do that. But I think they were kind of parents by example type of parents. And, you know, barely saw my dad growing up. Like, you know, he's, I shouldn't say that. Um, like during the week, you wouldn't see him much because he'd be, you'd kind of hear his motorbike taken off in the morning before, like you were even getting up for school. And he would come in at like, 
9 p.m. and have his dinner in front of the nine o'clock news type of thing. So very hard working. And then my mom, I guess, you know, we always thought that she was just like, you know, kind of a, a part-time doctor because she came home at like 5 p.m. and she dropped the girls to school and then would come home and make seven people dinner. So we didn't realize the massive endeavors that she was taking on at the same time too. But yeah, no, the two of them were always great. And when I told them that I wanted to move to America and not use my engineering degree, they weren't the happiest. They were really trying to dissuade me. And, you know, they were dropping me to the airport seven years ago. And yeah, the two, I mean, I just remember sitting in the back of the car with the two of them just being like, would you not think of doing this? Or would you maybe apply here? Or maybe look for an internship here? Or do this or do that? And it was just, to me, I just was, I was just taking this all as, Stephen, you can't do this. Like, you shouldn't do this. Like, you're not going to be successful doing this. And I was just like, I can't believe they're driving me to the airport here. And just telling me I'm going to be unsuccessful. And every time I came home, it was like, oh, have you, I started applying for engineering work because when I first moved out there, I, I just, I just got a job at Bubba Gumps and, um, you know, it was halfway through the football season. So the school I applied to just said, yeah, we'll take you on, but our season's going to be finished in a few weeks here. So why don't you come back in the spring or something like that? So I had from October through February to kind of get situated in San Francisco. So, um, every time I came home, my parents were expecting me to say, I've stopped my dreams of football and I've fallen in love with engineering and I've gotten an engineering job and I'm going to work. But uh, unfortunately for them, that never happened. Um, but every time I came home, I felt I was kind of getting those same questions. Oh, like, when are you going to give, never kind of said it's like, when are you going to give this up? But ne- they, ne- they would never drop the idea of moving into the engineering realm of things. And uh, I, I think, I think they were visiting San Francisco and I guess it was like the first time I'd spent time with them and they didn't bring up engineering and, kind of wrote them a big thank you letter after they left just being like i don't know if you two kind of realized this or talked about this beforehand but this is the first time we've had conversations since i've left ireland where you haven't asked about moving back into engineering like this is the first time you just kind of asked me how is coaching like how is this like did you have how was your game like what is next year looking like they're actually asking me questions about coaching rather than moving back and forth to engineering so took me a while to kind of realize that they were coming they always they were always looking out for my best interest and you know if you're parents and you're you send your kid off to school for 12 years and then he goes to university for five years you think finally we've done a good job with this one now he'll go and we don't have to worry about him and and then he says he's not going to do any of that and he's going to go work part-time at a restaurant at a theme restaurant i can understand why they're so worried and so concerned but their their ways of saying that we're worried you might be hungry we're worried you might not have a roof over your head was why didn't you go into engineering this football stuff isn't going to work out so it took me a while to understand that everything they said was coming from a good place even nowadays they're still checking in every now and again seeing how the football team is doing but yeah they, they've they've been a huge part of everything we do and my mum is an extremely loyal woman. So I think that's where I kind of got the idea of, I don't want to move to a different team in the same city. I don't want to move to a different job. And she's kind of got a, a fierce sense of loyalty. And I would like to think I have some of it. I don't know if I have it quite as extreme as she does, but, um, but I think it's, it's kind of served me here. And, you know, I've the, the current school I'm at, I kind of, when I came in the door, I was like, I'll do it. Like, I'll pay you guys. If you just let me in, like, I, I, I don't want any money. And he's like, good. We don't have any money to pay you. So, I was like, fantastic. I, I was like, serious. I like, just let me come and work here as a coach. And um, so I've always kind of felt indebted to them. And like, I owe them and I need to be loyal to them. And so they've kind of, anytime they've asked me to do something, I'll give out jerseys. Yes. Give out uh, like, you know, 
fold up all these pants, put them away. Fantastic. I'll do it. Like anything that, you know, pick up those cones, put those, like anything at all that can be done. I'm just trying like, I owe it to them. And certainly from my point of view, now I'm working at the school, uh, like full time as a substitute teacher. So it's, I know it's paid off showing them that loyalty and being able yeah. to have that loyalty in my life is, and it's, I think it's been great. You know, it's, yeah, trying to live through, I guess, my, my dad's hours of working and my mom's loyalty and trying to find some, <laughs> some kind of happy medium in there between the two of them. I think that they're both pretty good influences on us, but. Um, How hard is it, is it mentally to be away from your, like miles away from your family and yeah. not feel like in the beginning they're a hundred percent supportive of, what you're trying to do? Um, I guess I didn't realize the impact of it until last year. I mean, I went over to America with like saying, fuck you to our, like I was so done. I mean, I, I lived at home for five years during college too. And, you know, two older brothers had moved out at this point. My twin sister had moved out. So it was just me and my younger sister there. So, so I, I, I felt like I had kind of done my time in Ireland and I was just like, I was glad I was, had my American passport and I couldn't move 5,000 miles away. Like I, I, I was, I was burning bridges back to Ireland. Like I had my, uh, so I left in October. I think my graduation ceremony was in November and I was like, my parents are like, well, why don't you just delay going out there a month? And I was like, I want, I need to leave as soon as, like I didn't want to be in Ireland at the time. So I was, I thought Ireland was slowing my career, my future career as a football coach down. I thought spent like, I had just saved up about enough money to move over there. And I actually got down to about $16 at one point, but um, that's before the, the sweet bubble gum money started coming in. But, but yeah, it was, uh, I just, I, I, yeah, like I said, I, I didn't really notice it for a long time because I felt like I was out here. Like my success was the fuck you to Ireland that I wanted it to be. And I don't know if I was having that much success, but I kind of like realized through conversations that I had more uh, recent conversations at home with my brothers and stuff that I had more support than I realized. But again, it's, it, we were not a very communicative family. So I didn't really realize it at the time that I had had all that support and I didn't need to, you know, I didn't need to be successful out here to be able to go home. And I mean, I, I was even, th- I mean, even last Christmas, uh, or I guess I should say two Christmases ago, I, I kind of told my sister, uh, maybe next year I won't be home for Christmas. You know, maybe I'll just try and spend, save some money and, maybe I won't fly home. And then last year, just being told you can't go home. I was just, that's, I guess that's when I was really kind of hit me. And I realized that I actually need the family a little bit more than I have admitted in the past. And they're a much bigger influence on me and have, have been a big influence on me for a long time. And what you need them for? Keep me grounded and make me realize that the, you know, with or without jobs, with or without money, people can still smile. And, um, every one of my siblings has gone off in such different directions that I think that's the best tribute to my parents. Everyone's kind of got their own unique blend of things. And, you know, everyone's got, everyone's so their own person, I think. Um, you know, we have my eldest brother's got wife, kids, kind of more stable job. And he says he doesn't work in finance, but that's what we all tell him he works <laughs> in. Um, None of us have any idea what he does. Sends emails, we think. The, my next brother is kind of an artist who's working as a manager in a coffee shop. He kind of does his own paintings and records music. My twin sister is a doctor. My younger sister is a psychiatrist. So, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I guess, I guess the kind of the unspoken just kind of support that's there from my family. I, I love that. And any five minutes I can get with my siblings is always a blessing. And it, it did take me a long time to get there. And, 
kind of in the same way that I was a bit like, fuck you to Ireland when I was leaving. I was a bit like, fuck you to my older brother at the same time, which was a bit disappointing looking back on it because I don't think I ever expressed to him that. I mean, I think I, there was one Christmas where I was like, I'm sorry I am the way I am to you. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm sorry I'm a bit of a prick to you sometimes. He was like, I haven't noticed. I was like, oh, I had kind of built him up and kind of as not a villain in my head, but like someone kind of I'm adversarial with and kind of like this fractious relationship with. But um, I guess I guess he didn't get the memo that we were in an argument. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was kind of a bit like, oh, like I, I guess because he had the the, the 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 normal life, you know, he went to BlackRock, went to UCD to do commerce and then got a master's and then didn't get a job in finance, but did get a job in finance. He he led the stable life that I was like scared to live. Like that that I mean that that's why I wanted to get into the sports world, get into I wanted to do something extraordinary because I was like worried about the normal life, whatever that is. And I've also realized that sometimes I do things in pretty contrarian ways. And I like I have to just like like look, I know I'm like an Irish person over here doing American football coaching and like sometimes I just need to make sure I'm not just doing something to be contrarian i just need that is this something i actually want to do or is this something because it kind of like fits my profile that i kind of just like yeah this this would kind of go along with the rest of my thinking but is this something i actually want to do and commit to but you landed in america then and like how did you get yourself set up or what did you did you have um, to support you there not a lot uh, <laughs> so it moved to moved to san francisco and one of my best friends brother was living in san francisco at the time he stayed at this great hostel downtown and and so I booked a week in the hostel and then, you know, you had to kind of go in and pay in cash every morning. And I was like, this is starting to cost me a lot of money. I need to find an apartment pretty ASAP. So I eventually got into a place and um, was paying $750 a month for the top bunk in a four person room. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like a student dorm more than like an apartment or anything like that. There was like kind of three or four floors, kind of shared bathrooms, like out, like you'd have to, jump i mean climb down from your bunk bed and uh, go down the hall if, during the middle of the night and hope someone else wasn't using the bathroom uh if you had to go during the night and kind of the shared shower situation was pretty grim uh, or not shared showers but there was one shower to be shared yeah. um and then there's kind of like one small kitchen at the on the ground floor for like four floors of a of these kind of like busy apartments so but um as grim as that all sounds, it was actually fantastic. Like it was exactly what I was looking for. Like this kind of like almost hippy dippy kind of community of just like, again, like students. So I was like, um, still around that age. I was yeah, still 23 going on 24 when I moved out there. So it kind of a couple of other people kind of like lost souls looking for things to do or were on kind of similar paths of different people getting into all sorts of, I mean, there was guys trying to get into like clothes production, guys trying to get into movie production. So all these really, really unique people and, and, you know, I, who I would never would have had a chance to meet because unless, except for the fact that we had such bad living accommodation that we kind of, most people spent a lot of the time in like the shared spaces. Um, and like when we had, so I moved out there October. So like six to seven weeks later, there was Thanksgiving and, you know, like pretty much everyone made a dish and then put it out in the shared space and uh, everyone just kind of went around with a big plate and you got a little bit of everyone something. It was just like, oh, this is fantastic, like sense of community. It must have been easy to come even, not that you were lost, but like to lose direction. Like, so you were going over there to become an American football coach as you land into that community of people there who, you know, either 
up from a negative are lost souls and don't have any direction or on the positive side all are really driven to achieve whatever their given goal is and that would really help you i I think i kind of i mean i I like both aspects of it i think like the lost soul of it is like i mean we were all we all needed people in the city like we were each other's people in the city but at the same time we all left during the day and went off to go do our own individual things and that that almost helps it really of just like oh you know you can always go home to your bunch of weirdos and kind of relax and let your hair let your mullet down there one of my irish friends who was he'd been living around in america for a while but he'd been on kind of different visas and he had like 30 days left on a holiday visa and he said oh i'll come out and stay with you and i don't think he really understood my living situation and so again so the Two of us and another guy got a three-person room. So me and me and my friend were in a bunk bed, and he hadn't kind of gotten away from Irish people. And so when he came, he brought like, "Oh, this is so stupid." What did he, I mean? I was down talking to these people, and there's just such wafflers. Like he kind of brought like this kind of like negative attitude to us. And as soon as he did that, I couldn't get I couldn't get that out of my head. Then okay. I was like, I was like, I'd kind of allowed myself to kind of just become part of that kind of culture there in the house or in the in the building and. Uh, he always kind of kept himself on the outside and yeah when I, then when i would come home from work he'd be like oh that's so like you never believe what this guy was doing today and he kind of like maybe he made a more realistic view and that's kind of how i started seeing people there but he definitely kind of soured my view of the whole house there and so it wasn't too long after that that i actually moved out of the place it was kind of a weird experience i mean it, it's, it's almost like i kind of had to catch myself and i was like how far would i have let that go would i have just stayed in that building for like forever if i didn't have someone kind of give me that like yeah. And I didn't, I didn't like the, sh- I didn't like the kind of the wake up call that I kind of got from him in that regards. But, but I guess, I mean, it, it, it led to, it led to me moving on in the end. So I guess it was a good thing. So, but I mean, it was a, it was a crazy building. It was, I mean, you know, you'd go around the corner to do it to the laundromat and there's a huge homeless problem, homelessness problem in San Francisco. It's insane. And, you know, there's a lot of people doing like stuff like crack on the streets. And yeah, I mean, it was, all in our neighborhood. Um, so, you know, c- coming from Ireland, having lived at home for 24 years, this was all shocking news to me. Just seeing people injecting themselves with things as you're going to the shops on like a Friday evening or something like that, or smoking, whatever, prostitution around the area. I mean, it was like, again, like all this kind of crazy stuff for an Irish person. But again, I can kind of just like, oh, that's a bit mad and keep moving on. Whereas uh, after I left that first building, I was uh, moved in with a girlfriend I think originally we moved in, there was myself and three girls in the house, three women in the house. It wasn't until then that I realized just how sketchy the neighborhood was because I think they, the three of us were going to work together and um, I went down, I was with the girls and then I forgot something in the apartment. So I ran back upstairs and I was just like not even a hundred feet behind them. And just the amount of conversation that people were like throwing at them from the street, it was just like, you know, so much cat calling and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, like they have to like, they are treated so differently in this area. Like I am completely just as being a kind of a white six foot male, just being able to kind of just like kind of cut right through all that. I mean, not too many people are cat calling me as I walk down the street. So <laughs> that was kind of a bit eye opening, kind of realizing how kind of a sketchy neighborhood we were in. And I guess when I was trying to move to America, I didn't want it to be Irish at all. So it was every, like everything was new and exciting. How did you progress the American football of coaching then? Um, so the first school I went into, like, yeah, I, I got, I got in on the 6th of October, 2014. And I just, I looked up like kind of a schedule of games in the area, like high school games, kind of 15 year olds and up found that there was a school pretty close by. And I, 
walked up to the school to go watch a game on a Saturday morning and, you know, kind of a pretty small stadium there, but I um, just kind of waited for the whole game, kind of was taking notes on both teams. I didn't even know which team was the home team during the game. Like there wasn't like a big, there was no like announcements. There was no nothing. So, and, you know, I was kind of sitting there, sitting there and the game ends and kind of walked down and kind of just like standing, like kind of let the stands kind of empty and the field kind of empties and kind of figure out which guy is the head coach by how many people are kind of talking to him and asking him questions. And then, and it was kind of funny talking to him about this afterwards. He's like, yeah, I kind of saw pretty much everyone left the stands. There was one guy standing there and then everyone kind of left the field. And there's just kind of this one guy just like standing there, like waiting for me to be done with stuff. So it's kind of going to, I was just going to let him approach me about it. And so eventually I did, I walked up to him and was just like introduced myself, kind of told him I played football in Ireland, pretty low level, but we'd still done some good things with our football team. And, and he was just like, yeah, he was the guy who said that, yeah, we will take you on if you want to come back in the, in the spring, but like our season's almost over. So that's kind of where it started. And then the next spring we came back and I started off as a wide receivers, a wide receivers and linebacker coach. And uh, then over the next three years there, I kind of bounced around on defense, but I've always stuck with the wide receivers and I'm still wide receiver coach now. But that first year was just. I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, this is the first year I wasn't also playing and coaching. And now I'm not communicating to Trinity students who are like kind of on the same, same level of me personality wise, kind of intelligence wise, understanding wise. Now I'm going to a public school in San Francisco and dealing with 15 year olds. To eight, like I always tell people, you can just tell these 15 year olds, the sky is blue a hundred times a day every day of the year and then if you get into a game and you ask them what color the sky is they'll probably say red i don't know i guess you kind of take for granted that they're just kids you know how much respect did they have for you as a because you've got well from a financial point of view nothing in the bank but like from a, a coaching point of view very little as well from these guys point i tried to be kind of pretty self-aware about stuff like that to be fair to the kids they took the coaching pretty well but still a little bit standoffish and then my next year, they kind of, I kind of opened up a little bit more, I guess. I, during the off season, I was kind of put in charge of the off season workouts with the kids. So actually doing that off season training with them was fantastic because then we weren't on the field. We weren't under like strict time constraints. It was just like get in, organize the kids, show them what to do, like, you know, have a bit of banter with them. But yeah, it kind of took me a while to kind of build up those relationships. And then by the, by my third year there, it was fantastic. I was the, the kind of the junior team's head coach. And so I kind of got to have even more time with the young guys and got to call plays for the first time, which was pretty cool and pretty daunting. And it was kind of like, you know, you know, in Madden, you kind of pick the plays yourself. And now you're doing that with real people. You're telling your guys, you know, you got a block like this and you have to run your route like this. How to, I mean, I don't know if I would be where I am today if that first head coach hadn't kind of let me in and he gave me, and there's only four coaches on staff. So there's a lot of like fill in wherever you have to. And I just got, I got, I got to try so many different aspects of football those first three years that it really just kind of like ex accelerated my interest. I mean, I was already like, you know, in the deep end thinking this is what I want to do the rest of my life. But those first three years were like really, great I got to call offense and defense and just like that that idea of getting to work with so many people from different backgrounds and uh, that was always kind of really 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 a cool really exciting draw to me about football it's just like the how different it always is how unique it always is so and and get and I, I that's another thing I took from college is I was never very good at it, but I knew how to work with other people and that's one thing I took from college in a big sense and that's what I tried to tell kids I'm working with now is you know, it's no matter what you're doing, you're probably not going to do it alone. Like you're always going to have to work in a group. You're always going to have to work with someone like even someone running their own business is going to have to communicate with someone about getting product in or sales or marketing or, 
who knows what, but I mean, it's so rare that you do anything completely alone. Um, how long did it take you to make your first dollar as an American football coach? Um, I guess it was, so I got there 2014, a little over a year, but um, it was like a, a thousand dollars or it might have been like $800 or something like that. But it was like, oh, here's a part of the coach's stipend for the year. And again, the head coach just like, he got X amount and he divided it up between the amount of coaches like evenly. So, I mean, at the time it was so exciting to me because again, it, it was that idea of getting paid as a coach. And that's, that really is the end goal is to, to stop having to work part-time jobs to afford coaching right now. So getting that first check was pretty cool. But uh, actually this off season, I, one of the coaches I was working with in San Francisco, he, he moved to a junior college. He got a promotion this year and offered me a full-time position with him. Um, so it was the first time I actually ever got offered a job as a football coach, which was pretty cool this off season. So um said so there'd be pay in it for me and everything. So it was, it was actually very hard to turn down. I just feel like it'd be a slight step back in the sense that um maybe I would have more say in what's going on, but maybe not at the same level. And, you know, at the high school I'm at now, there's like several, several of the coaches have NFL experience coaching at college experience and um, like the head coach, at the high school itself has been there for I think 36 or 37 years. So there's just like so much experience at the school I'm at now that I didn't want to step away from that. Again, felt like I kind of owed it to them a little bit to kind of stay on and not leave to go at the very first opportunity of getting money somewhere else. And I just had to like write that down on paper when it happened because I couldn't believe that I actually got a job offer. I, I, someone had offered me money to go and be a football coach. And admittedly, it was an old friend, but I'm sure that's where many of these job offers yeah. come from. So, What's it like being in an American high school environment? I've been to two very different high schools. It's like the, the one in San Francisco was a public school. So it was actually, uh, actually the community there was probably uh, mostly Asian kids, I would say, kind of uh, Pacific Asian kids. And um, then kind of more uh, kind of Latino, uh, black kids, and then kind of, one of the more minorities in the school was white kids. So that was kind of coming from Ireland. And, and so that was kind of, it was great for me because that's exactly what I want. I, I didn't want it to be Irish. I didn't want it to be like anything I knew before. So I, I really enjoyed that fact of being able to go over and get to know all these people from different backgrounds and all these, di I mean, names that you've just never seen written in books before. Like I was like, I, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Like, can you just tell me how to pronounce this? And like, just everything was new and interesting and fascinating. And, you know, one of my lasting memories from that school is like kids would come running over to the practice field being like, coach, coach, can I have a dollar? Like, I want to go over and get like a you know cup of noodles. And then like before practice starts, it's like practice starts in four minutes. It's like, please coach, <laughs> I haven't had any food today. You're like, oh my God. And just like give the kid like a couple of granola bars and a piece of fruit or something like that and send them out onto the field. And, you know, the school I'm at now is a bit more, it's a Catholic private all boys school. and I, I'm more likely to be asking these kids for a dollar than them asking me for one. So um, I'm showing up to the school on my on my bicycle and kids are pulling in in their Land Rovers or Teslas or Maseratis and things like that. So um, not all the kids now, just a few of them. But, but yeah, there's de definitely two very different dynamics in terms of the schools I've been at. But, um, and then also the first school was uh, boys and girls, whereas this is just a boys school. So. Again, I, I, everything's been so different, and that's—I mean—it's kind of hard to 
know where to fit in in any way, shape or form as this kind of Irish football coach. And I'm kind of like looking to the other coaches for kind of a little bit of direction at times. But um, I think now that I'm, so I've been at the school for a few, three or four years now, but now, now that they have me in there every day, I've actually started giving the kids Irish words of the day. And so last mm. Friday I gave them Dia Gwich and Dia Smiragwich. And I, you know, I, know, I normally just write the words up on the board and then have the kids try and say it back and you kind of get some brutal pronunciations, but they're actually getting, I mean, I put the word, up, I put uh, Leveris up on the board and got some great attempts at how to say Leveris. I guess there's such an uh, important part of this is culture and, um, after last year, none of the kids were in schools or school over here for like the best part of two years almost. So like actually in person school, they kind of shut everything like that down yeah. in Washington. So like just trying to show the kids, like, this is my culture. This is where I'm from. Like just trying to like let them insult it if they want, let them enjoy it if they want, like let them try and try and say the words if they want, but, uh, more just kind of show them a little bit of my culture with the long-term goal of them just realizing it's okay to bring their culture into the class too um, and not have everyone be so kind of cookie cutter with it. So um, I'm not sure entirely how successful it is, but sometimes we'll be halfway through a class and be like, where's the Irish word of the day? Give us our Irish word of the day. <laughs> the ability to speak Irish, is that something you would have held in yeah. any regard? No, as, as soon as I, so because I was born in America, I found out pretty young that you don't have to sit the leaving cert uh, Irish exam if you're not born in the 32 counties. So I was every day counting down the days I had to still be in Irish class because BlackRock would make you stay in Irish class up until Easter of sixth year. So um, I had to take the junior cert in, uh, in Irish. In, in fourth year, they kept me in an honors class. And I was like, but I'm going to drop down. Like, I'm not going to sit this exam. Please don't make me do this. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, the past classes are full. So, you know, you're going to have to stay in this class. And then fifth year, I got to drop down to pass or ordinary level. And sixth year, again, I was in that pass class, still had to sit a Christmas exam, still had to sit an Easter exam. And then after Easter, they would let you drop the class. So, but I mean, the whole time in school, I was like, this is something I'm not going to use outside of school. This is something I'm not going to sit an exam in. Like, why am I putting any effort into this? So to kind of be now showing kids the Irish language. I mean, like I, I was terrible at Irish the whole time. I mean, I never understood this. Maybe it's because I thought I was kind of more American and thought that that would kind of go in a different direction and that I wouldn't really need this. I mean, I was like, why are we learning this old language that no one uses anymore? This is stupid. Like I, It's interesting then you go to like a, a country that, you know, origins and race is so contentious and yeah, you no, kind of revert to using your Irishness as a way of, helping you fit in or, or make connections. And, um. Yeah. And I think, I think that was a big thing for me is that I didn't, you know, in my head, I didn't want to be known as an Irish coach. Like I, you, you kind of hear about like female professional coaches kind of getting into a new industry. Like there's, uh, I think last year was like the first time a female, uh, I think the San Antonio Spurs, the basketball team, their head coach was out due to an illness or something like that. And so the, the interim head coach for the game, I think was a female coach. And I think that was like kind of like one of the first times that had happened. Um, and, you know, just like when you hear like interviews with women like that, they're like, they don't want to be known as a female coach at all. They just want to be known as a coach. And I kind of had that same mentality. So I almost like, I did my best to hide the fact that I was Irish. Like, you know, I would change, I wouldn't say the word orange. I would say orange. I wouldn't say, I mean, wouldn't say pasta. I would say pasta. And so it's like, it's almost like when I go home, it's like a relief that I can just kind of just revert and not have to think about what I'm saying sometimes. And but I just kind of realized that I can't, as long as I kind of carry 
my Irishness as like kind of a bad thing, then other people will see it as a bad thing. If I'm kind of ashamed of being Irish, people will kind of pick up on that or sense that a little bit. And I mean, I still change kind of how I talk, but I'm not, I'm not worried about being referred to as being Irish anymore. I'm not like, I think it's done me good to kind of have that time to kind of step away from it all and stop being so egotistical and stop being so, I, I kind of, I, looked at Irish as almost kind of a negative thing in the, in the terms of trying to become a successful coach here. So, and you know, the first thing people always say is, Oh, don't lose your accent. Don't lose your accent. It's like, well, the problem is if I say something in an Irish accent, <laughs> everyone's like, Oh, say that again. Say that again. Oh, that's so funny. You say that's so weird. Say that again. And so it's like, you have so many of those conversations over here. And you know, there's, there's times I was working in restaurants and you know, people are like, Oh, do you have an accent? Is it you're Canadian, right? Because I kind of, I have that kind of half and half and they're like, you sound kind of American, but not quite American. So their first instinct, I mean, so many people are like, oh, Canadian, right? Um, and then I tell them I'm from Ireland and they're like, oh, I have family from there. And I was like, oh, really? Where are they from? And, oh, no, no, no. Like years and like generations ago. And I was like, okay. So, anyway, so this, like, you, you, you kind of end up having this kind of the same conversation with like Americans who say they're Irish or Americans who want to go to Ireland. And just kind of used to those kind of stock conversations with Americans about being Irish. So that that's when I kind of like, when I was dropping down food to a table, that's when I would kind of, instead of saying tacos, I'd say, here are your tacos. And just like, just like little things like that. So I wouldn't be given, I wouldn't give away to people that I was Irish. And then I almost had like kind of the same experience with Irish people when they come into the restaurant. People are like, oh, there's some. I almost kind of got nervous getting into these conversations with them because then every time I spoke to an Irish person, oh, what are you doing over here? And it was just be like I felt like I was just you know at the start I'd give them every little detail, and then it was just like I would just kind of give them bullet points, and then I'd almost kind of shrug off the question just because I was just so used to having the same conversation. Like, oh, I have someone who did that, or I know someone who went to Trinity, and just you know, I was just anyway. But as long as I carried around the idea of Irishness as kind of a negative. That's how I went into all those conversations. I was already trying to get out of conversations that I hadn't even had yet. Long story short, being Irish is, is a good thing, even though it took me a long time to realize it. And, you know, it, it was part of like that running away from Ireland at the start, like kind of running away from my family. It was kind of flipping every, it was flipping off Ireland. It was flipping off my family. It was flipping off the idea of being like every part of it I was done with because I didn't think it was going to help me moving forward. And now I guess that the more I realize it, the again, it, you know, you always kind of read about kind of people like, oh, don't have a plan B, don't have a safety net. Like, that's the only way you'll be successful. And I was just like, well, my safety net is being Irish and having people back home that love me, whether or not I'm a football coach or waiter at Bubba Gums, or if I actually give it all up and go get an engineering job, or if I give it all up and become a priest or whatever I do, I know they're going to support me. And um, I guess it took us a while to kind of have those conversations with family. And it's all definitely been for the better, but it's just kind of, sometimes it's a shame. It kind of takes you having to kind of go way far off the deep end to realize just hang on a second. Like this is just so silly, but, but again, if you don't communicate with people, this is kind of where it ends up going. So it's funny. You were just talking about the kind of journey you've gone on there and your, your family, how they've, like your brothers and sisters have got all gone off and done their own thing and been encouraged to do their own thing. As a twin, is it harder for you then to, to do your own thing because you almost have like a direct comparator. Um, yeah, no, it definitely makes it more kind of um, more susceptible to comparisons, but I guess, so me and her did not get, I mean, we used to share a room up until like third class or something like that, uh, share a bedroom. And then at that point we were separated and I think we just kind of got further and further apart from there on. 
you know, we used to have joint birthday parties until we were about 12 or 11 or something like that. And then 20 boys were chasing 20 girls around the house and like <laughs> trying to like, they were all hiding in her bedroom and like guys in my class were trying to like bash the door in with like brooms and stuff. And <laughs> I think that's when my parents decided we should probably no longer have joint birthday parties. And uh, me and her were very different as teenagers. I was very much quietly put my head down at home, avoid conflict, avoid confrontation. Megan was right about most things as a teenager. So other people were wrong and that's how she got into arguments with them. And I was just like, how can she just get, how, how can you argue with someone every, like how can you be pit, like that pissed off that you're going to carry an argument every day? And but yeah, I think uh, having Megan there as that side-by-side comparison was tough for me for a while. And like, even in college and first year, I remember like uh, there was a guy who was kind of in my friend circle and uh, one of his other friends was dating a friend of Megan. So he was just like, he just told me one day, I was like, you and your sister have the exact same sense of humor. And I was just like insulted by the comparison. I was like, <laughs> No, like me and Megan are so different. Like our text messages for about four or five years were, where's the car? Because we had a, we shared the Mitsubishi Colt, fantastic beast of a car. But uh, <laughs> that, that's all our texts were, was like, where's the car? When will you be back with the car? Why isn't there gas in the, like, why isn't there petrol in the car? Like how much, when was the last time you put five euro into the car? Like that's, there was no, how are you, how was your day? But when, once she moved out of the house, uh, when she got to college after first year, I think, then we kind of were able to kind of come back together a little bit. And um, it was kind of around the same time that Ailish, my youngest sister, became really, really ill. And I think a lot of us, uh, in the, or almost all of us in the family, were just like, there's so much childishness that we've just kind of like let kind of carry on and not just should have just snipped it in the bud. And we actually all became so much closer right then. And again, we kind of all just stopped pretending to be enemies and, kind of realized that again like through through like you know uh mutual friends that we are more similar and we're you know a lot more on the same page and you know the two of us were both in trinity at the same time but she was in the arts block and you know we probably had a lot more of the same issues than we ever realized but we didn't really kind of communicate it to each other and you know i i didn't know anything about megan's real college experience at the time and you know it was only through my parents being like I'm worried I'm not doing very, like I would tell my parents that like, I'm worried I'm not doing very well. And like, you guys are paying for all these like grinds outside of college. And they're like, Oh, we don't care. Like, that's fine. Like you're so much better than your sister. She calls us the morning of an exam crying in the bathroom before the exam. I was like, well, I had no, I like, I mean, I was worried. I mean, about exams, but I never up to that kind of scale. And I never knew that. I mean, again, I didn't get that information from my sister. So, but anyway, I think that having her as a comparison was, it was almost off limits to compare the two of us for a long time, or at least I wouldn't have listened to any kind of comparisons. And uh, we, we cycled down to Bantry one year as a family and I kind of skipped a day or two. Megan did the whole thing. And in the last hundred yards or so, I did like the tour de France, like finish so I could get <laughs> to Bantry first. And Me- I don't, I don't think Megan still, I mean, she says she's forgiven me for it, but I don't think she has, but there's some pictures from like Bantry square there where Megan has the most sour face on. And um, I mean, I, I have no idea what she got in the leaving search, but I mean, when, even when we both got our leaving search the same day, obviously, um, I mean, I have no idea what she got or how successful she was. I didn't know what colleges she was trying to go to. I think she was trying to get into medicine, but I didn't learn about that until about a year ago. So there was just like so much I didn't know about her at the time. And like I said, it was, we were so far apart or maybe it's because we were so similar. That's why we butted heads for so long. And it probably is the case, honestly, because 
now she's probably the one I talk to the most. I mean, I don't think the two of us ever saw it as a direct competition or comparison, but I mean, as a teenager, I guess I preferred it because Megan would be arguing with my mom and I'd be like, can I help with the dishes? I'd be like, haha, now I can get what, I mean, <laughs> and then I was allowed to go do 10 times as many things as Megan. Like it was very much, I was like, that. that's when I enjoyed the comparison. It sounds very much like you have got like physically gotten further away from your family, but and Ireland in a way, but actually in other ways gotten a lot, lot closer to them. Yeah, I, that's, yeah, very, a hundred percent. I mean, just, I was so done with Ireland when I was still in Ireland, like, I kind of felt like I owed my younger sister, Eilish, who was still still a bit ill at the time. I felt like I kind of had to stay at home while she was there so she would at least have a sibling in the house to kind of maybe talk to. Not that we ever really spoke that much, but someone she could kind of hopefully be a teenager with or just be a person with and not have mm. to be a child to. So by the time I was leaving and by the time I'd kind of figured out that I wanted to do kind of coaching, then it was like, okay, now I need to, now I need to go. Now I need to finish up this engineering I would have thought an Irish passport is probably one of the best currencies you could have in America, even though you were going in as an American citizen. And especially when you compare that then to all the horrible stuff that people from other countries have to put up with. That's a huge thing that I've realized is that like, I can basically, I mean, I've been allowed into, I've been privy to a lot more conversations than I probably would have wanted to because people are just like, oh, he's American. Like they don't think of me as an Irish person sometimes. And and again, that's what I wanted. I mean, Mm. that's what I set out to do was to try and fit in as an American. Um, And like, you know, the whole time growing up in Ireland, I was thinking, I can't wait to use my blue American passport to get the hell out of here. Yeah. Um, So as as good as uh, as an Irish passport is in America, uh, I, w- I mean, I had the opposite thought of it growing up. It was like, I can't wait to get out of here. And, um, but yeah, I think, I mean, there's, I mean, I remember being at like a 4th of July party and some guy just, I mean, and to be fair, his friend kind of said, I mean, his friend knew what the guy was going to say, but he was just like, oh, tell him what you think about uh, black people wanting to stay together in their communities. And this guy kind of went off on like this 10 minute tangent. And like, there's like four or five of us Irish people there just being like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like this guy just has such backwards ideas of don't know where he's getting this in from. And like the fact that some people don't think that there's racism in America is bananas. Like, I mean, does it bother you that that's the country you choose to live in? Um, I don't know. Not, not, not enough to kick, to keep me out of the country. You know, I mean, it's, this is the only country where I think the dream that I have can come true. And uh, maybe that's how other people feel as well. And that's why they stay here. But so heart wrenching to kind of understand that some people, I mean, just they don't even get to dream, like let alone to even try and chase their dream. You know, they, I mean, the idea of oh, what do you want to do when you're older? You're like, what do you want to do when I want to get older? Like I'm trying to get through, I'm trying to get out of high school. Like and them then being able to go to you. I mean, they were just like that. They had no intention of going to university, some of them. And then they're like, oh, we can just go to city college for two years and get a degree and at least have a step towards something else. And I guess back to your original point, I mean, it, it does bother me that this is the country where there's so much disparity. But I guess I would prefer to try and get this ship righted than kind of go off and try to just build a new ship, I guess, you know, and I think a lot of people are kind of resigned to living in that kind of window of, um, I mean, I guess I'm fortunate enough to have the choice 
Whereas, I mean, I, I could go home today, you know, um, but, you know, some people are resigned that, you know, this is the kind of the system that they were born into. And you have clearly made a name for yourself at, at some level of American football. Where do you think it, you will end up? Like, where's your where's your goal? You know, I, I think if I can get into once I get into coaching and once I can stop having to work that second job, I I mean, I, maybe it's the naivety, but maybe it's just a bit of self-confidence. I just don't think it's going to go backwards from there. I think everything is just more and more and more. And I want to see how far I can kind of take it, essentially. Thank you, Stephen. What a bold move to give up the relative security of an engineering degree to chase a dream where the odds are stacked against him. Stephen readily admits his background provides him with privileges that allow him to take the chance on becoming an American football coach. But putting that aside, he still needs to take that leap. In the face of family and societal expectation, he chases a dream. And it should act as an inspiration for all of us to go and do whatever it is, big or small, that we've always wanted to do. It's fascinating listening to Stephen talking about his battle with identity and how much it meant to him as he's grown up. From being concerned about hiding his BlackRock background to allowing his hair to do the talking for him in college, ignoring his Irish roots and finally embracing the Irish language to help find a place for himself in America. It's striking that his happiest time seemed to be when he embraced who he was, in college with a red mullet, and later, teaching Irish words to American kids, rather than worrying about what others thought of him. It's easier said than done, but once accomplished, it brings great rewards. Families are complex structures. Stephen speaks repeatedly about the importance of communication, a nod to how important it is, and something we could all learn from. We shouldn't need to wait for adversity to strike to improve that communication, but often that is exactly how things play out. Throw being a twin into the mix and communication becomes even more important. That's it for this week. But before we go, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the share button wherever you are listening or just tell a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'll be back next week and I hope you will too. We are the people is presented and produced by myself, Philip Burke, and our theme tune is The People by Trevega.